there's a discourse and a conversation around these topics for the last 50 to 60, 70 years, right? So, and certain things have changed over that time that have uh, opened up new possibilities even in, uh, in the secular realm. But the, uh, it's an ongoing conversation. And a lot of the things that are difficult to understand, that's what they need. They don't need like a single person to have the all-ending opinion on something, but for us to share ideas and to engage with them sincerely and to try to have some back and forth and some conversation, okay? So, like I said, the reality is that mental health and discourses around mental health are everywhere around us now. You know, our con our, especially in social media, you see it all over the place, right? And we should recognize that, uh, for better or for worse, some of what we do on social media, a lot of it is essentially we're subjects of marketing, right? So, uh, we should just always keep that in mind. It's not necessarily that everything around mental health is a marketing scam or something. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we should keep this in mind. Um, and but it's everywhere. It's in our social media. It's in our institutions. It's in our popular culture. It's in schools and and uh, all of these other places. And oftentimes for good reason, right? The reality is that many people go through any number of things. And some of the early Muslims they commented on this. Uh, one of the people whose work will get mentioned as we continue is Abu Zaid al Banqi. Abu Zaid al Banqi lived. I don't know, probably 900 years ago or something. And one of the things that he says is that, um, he says that he talks about mental health illnesses in the, con in the context of his work on physical illnesses. And he says that in physical illnesses, they uh, affect people at different times and then they pass, right? Someone has an injury to a part of their body, they treat that part of their body, and then the body heals and the injury passes and they go on with their life, right? But uh, mental health illnesses actually can afflict people at even a much higher uh, consistency. They can have a much more ongoing impact on a person's life. And so he says it's even more important that we address mental health than it is even that we address physical health. This is Abu Zayn al many. Uh, I don't think I did it at the Mentalist, but I taught his book before. I think it was at UCI. I don't know if any of you were there then, but... Um, uh, you know, it's very interesting that he had this perspective, he had this understanding, you know. So, uh, nothing, I'm, nothing that will be said is to indicate in any sort of way that mental health doesn't exist, it exists. Like, obviously, we have things. We have depression, we have anxiety, we have anger management issues, we have communication problems, we have unhealthy behaviors and all types of things that affect our overall well-being. And the question is, how can we uh, engage with this? Because it is a reality. So how do we position ourselves and how do we engage in and talk about it? I realized that I didn't actually start the, the recording. And I don't even know how to get to it. That's not how I get to it. Is it on Zoom? Yeah, there, let's see. I don't know why the window doesn't pop up. Because huh? I'm screen sharing, right? But where's the thing to turn off screen sharing? I feel like I'm a new teacher again. How come it's not? Anyone can come up and help me. Uh,
Usually the screen share thing pops up, but it does not pop now. I can see it up there, but not here. Usually when the here it comes, right? Are you looking for the recording? Is that it? Oh, here. Puts it here. That's why. It's the computer. Okay. The recording is possible. I think we just yeah. start from Recording in progress. Well, the good news is that whatever whoever watches the recording is going to miss all the disclaimers. <laughs> so expect expect me to get roasted. different branches around the country 
uh, providing these kind of uh, mental health services and counseling services to uh, Muslims, right? So probably some of you are familiar with Khalil Sami. So uh, we're going to look at a couple of things from each of these. Uh, but before we do, uh, well, as part of how we do, we look at, so the first idea is the history and the response. And actually this is going to be largely taken from the introduction of this book. So, the reason why I want to do this history piece is because when we look in the community right now, outside of the broader community, but like in the Muslim community, you have kind of like two approaches. You know, you have people who were born and raised here and educated here, and they usually are kind of like, don't really have an issue with mental health and therapy and stuff like that. You know, you ask them, should you go to counseling? And they'll be like, yeah, counseling's not a problem. If you need counseling, you go to counseling. It's okay. Of course, you have some people who resist. But generally speaking, people have some level of familiarity with it, some level of openness to it. And then you have another segment of the community, sometimes more uh, immigrant-based, which is not to like uh, create problems between groups or something, but tend to be more immigrant-based, who are kind of like very skeptical of mental health, very skeptical of going to therapists. You, know, you talk to them about, uh, and, and you know, we've, we've probably all heard these things, even just recently I was in a khutbah, and like between the lines, the shaykh was basically saying, there's no such thing as a counselor, you don't need a counselor, you just need this hadith. And then I spent the whole khutbah trying to understand which hadith he's talking about, I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> it was like the weird, strangest experience, you know. And, uh, but anyways, you know, so you'll still hear this stuff all the time. And so, we, so what's some of the history of this? So the way that, and, and again, this is not meant to be like all exhaustive. It's just meant to give us a little bit of a taste. Um, so first they talk about very briefly the history of this, the, the intellectual heritage and mental health. And so they talk about Abu Zayn Belki, which I mentioned in the ninth century. So he was in the ninth century, um, like common era century, so whatever that would be, about a thousand years ago, 900 years ago. So uh, he wrote about a lot of things actually. If you, you can find his book, if anyone's interested in reading it, it's published, it's online, it's called Sustenance of the Soul. And he kind of presents this cognitive therapy, roughly, approach to dealing with a number of issues. Um, he specifically talks about depression, and he specifically actually uh, breaks it into different categories. Like he'll distinguish between a depression that kind of comes and goes and a depression that really stays. Um, then he'll, he also talks about, I think it was phobias, and he talks about uh, essentially OCD. And one of the things I mentioned here is that in, in one research, uh, they did a comparative analysis of what Abu Zayd Benfi talks about in terms of his symptomology regarding OCD and what they use in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders, of Mental Disorders, just like the standard book for the field. And they found basically that what Mbenki talked about and what the manual today talks about are roughly the same. Like they have almost the same layouts. So there's a clear kind of precedent in that regard. Um, throughout kind of like the classical periods of Islamic history, you have all kinds of contributions to areas that would be considered to be within the realm of mental health, you know, character development, behavior management, cognitive processes, um, 
So you have people like Abu Bakr al-Razi who died in 313 after Hijrah. You have uh, Ibn Muskawai who died in 421 after Hijrah. You have Ibn Sina who died in 428 after Hijrah. Uh, Ibn Rushd who died in 594. Ibn Ghazali who died in 510. So these are very early, right? We're talking, this is all a thousand years ago. Not, so very early the Muslims have some sort of conceptualization around this stuff. And this is why sometimes we have to, um, you know, like in, in our tradition, we always say, that the consideration is given to the meanings of things, not to the forms of things. So sometimes when we, we, we get connected to particular forms, we don't understand what's actually being talked about. So we don't realize that there's an overlap. Like there's a there's a significant overlap in many of the works of Tasawwuf and spirituality and Tazkiyah and stuff like this with many areas of mental health. It's not complete overlap, but there's overlap in some areas. Um, but if we pay attention to what we're talking about, then we can see that. Um, then they, so they just mentioned that kind of in passing to mention that these individuals were there. Their work was there. Their work was developed. Their work was adopted. There were, there were mental hospitals in Muslim lands. Some of them like went so far as to use music therapy and stuff like that. You know, so there was there was an idea. There were gardens in these hospitals that people would get treatment and so on and so forth. And and these are different studies. And then you have all kinds of alternative spaces. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, why do you guys have a medjlis? Can't you just have a masjid? As if like there were never any other institutions in Islamic civilization other than masjids and businesses. Now, you know, there were other institutions too. People had other places that they could go to that they would spend time in. With, would nourish them and, and help them and so on and so forth. And so that happens all throughout. And they mentioned just some names and stuff. Then they talk a little bit about the European advancements in clinical psychology and secularization. And this is an important point. This probably came up in Sheikh Fouad's class. But um, basically, what if, if we were to like bring the short of it, the short of it is that in, in the through the Renaissance in Europe. And there is a conflict between religion and science perceived amongst the Europeans. And in the, in the processes and methodologies of philosophy and knowledge in the West, science wins out, so to speak, right? What this means, practically speaking, is that there is a reductionism that takes over. The reductionism is that we used to see the world in the realm of the physical and the spiritual. We used to see the world in the realm of the physical and the metaphysical. Right? That there's a physical reality, there's things that go beyond the physical reality. But when God loses, in a sense, like obviously we know the reality, right? <laughs> but when intellectual tradition-wise, when God loses, then it becomes all material. And it becomes all secular. And so when people begin to deal with questions of how do we deal with human psychology? How do we deal with the human psyche, the soul, the human soul? How do we deal with the human soul? It no longer even becomes the human soul. It becomes a matter of the mind. It becomes a matter of um, very um, like behavioral dominant, cognitive dominant, and uh, you know not very friendly to religion. Okay, and I think that sometimes eras pass, and we don't realize what happened in the era right before it. Okay, this is very important. This is true for psychology. It's true for Islamic studies. It's true for community work. All this kind of stuff. You know, like people that grew up in the community in my era. We have things intellectually that we're still dealing with that for the most part people who are growing up now, they don't really like, they're like, why are you guys even talking about this? This is an issue for us. But for us it was an issue. Like, we lived through the early 2000s. We know what Islam in America was like in the early 2000s. You don't remember. 
Because that ship sailed for you, alhamdulillah, Allah saved you. But if you don't know history, then it comes back. If you don't know the things that happen, then they come back, right? So a lot of people will look at it now, like if someone's coming up in mental health and stuff now, they probably are looking at it and they're like, oh, there's some, now there's conversations around like, big conversations around cultural competency, big conversations around, you know, what can, are there indigenous practices that can be useful in the, in the work of mental health? Are there religious and spiritual practices that can be useful in the realm of mental health and so on and so forth? But that was totally off the table, even as close probably as like 10, 15 years ago. So I have to keep this in mind, that we don't, we don't just like experience things in our moment right now and there was nothing before it. There were things that happened before it. So for example, uh, one person, they said, priests should stay out of therapy and therapists should stay out of spirituality. Uh, even with the postmodern era challenges to reductionism, influential postmodern theorists such as Carl Rogers maintained a disdain for religion within psychological practice. So if we were to think about this, let's think about it for a second. What is a person trying to do in mental health or psychological practice? They're trying to bring a person from a certain state of being, essentially, to a better one, whatever it is that they're dealing with. For us as Muslims, can you take religion out of that? <laughs> I mean, it's very difficult to take religion out of that. You, you might be able to take religion out for like a particular uh, technique or a particular tool or like you're dealing with something, so there's an approach that you use that doesn't really have to do with religion. But the overall treatment of this human being, if they're, if they're Muslims of some sort of care for Islam, the overall treatment of this human being cannot be divorced from their religion. Um, and so to, to, to go down this approach shows the challenge. Interestingly, then they come back. So what's the response? What's the response to secularization of psychology and behavioral sciences by Muslim psychologists in the modern era? I found this amazing. 1979, Malik Badri, some of you, anyone heard of Malik Badri? Dr. Malik Badri? He's the one who translated Sustenance of the Soul. He's the one, he's, he's like one of the pioneers in Islamic psychology. He wrote a number of things and a lot of research. And he's, there's an old book we used to read when we were in college called um, uh, Contemplation in Islamic Psycho-Spiritual Study. It's an amazing little book on like meditation and, and how, it's, how it's part of Islam and stuff like that. It's a cool book. So Manik Badri in 1979, 1979, published a work called The Dilemma of Muslim Psychologists. Okay. 1979, imagine that. It says, he published The Dilemma of Muslim Psychologists as a response to the exclusion of faith from the field of psychology and behavioral sciences. Okay. I'm gonna, some of these passages, I'm just going to read them because they're really good. Uh, Badri, 1979, continuing the conversation started by Ismail Faruqi, who died in 1986. Are you guys familiar with this name? Again, the history is being lost. Uh, Ismail Faruqi, anyone know this name? Nobody? Ismail Faruqi is one of the major pioneers of the Islamization of Knowledge Project. And he wrote in, in philosophy and Muslim thought and stuff like that. And he lived in America, he was killed in his home. So there's a lot of question marks around it. Someone came into his home and killed him. He was like a, a very famous researcher and, and thought producer. So he continued this conversation started by Ismail Faruqi on Islamic thought and knowledge, highlighted the incompatibility of a reductionist, ultra-behavioral, secular tradition, among some other theoretical orientations of Islamic belief, particularly in the science that dealt with the human psyche, once translated as the soul. Such modalities were also important into the Muslim world and rapidly became stigmatized. They psychopathologized Muslim culture and were rejected by a large segment of the communities they attempted to serve 
contributing to the stigma of mental health left over from the colonial era. This passage is really interesting. Because again, sometimes we look at it, we're like, oh, you know, the aunties and uncles, they're just, uh, I'm not saying these are not my words, okay? But these are things that you'll hear. You hear people say things like, oh, the aunties and uncles, they're just backwards, they just don't believe in depression and mental health and this stuff, and they need, they need help themselves, and people start saying all these things, right? There's a reason. It's not, like sometimes people, we shouldn't just write people off super quickly. Sometimes they understand things that we didn't understand, you know? So what happened? What happened was that there was an understanding of psychology and mental health that was completely divorced of religion. And then in the era of this colonial stuff that's going on, this was taken to Muslim lands and was trying to use to deal with the sicknesses of the Muslims, right? Because the Muslims, of course, were filled with sicknesses, right? That's why we're being colonized and everything else. Is we have these things. So then what happens is the Muslims quickly are going to reject this because they're going to see this for what it is, which is essentially an extended arm of the colonial project to take away the religion of the people, right? Which is the same thing. Again, you know, like the psychology, you see the same thing in Islamic studies in the West. Some people now, they go into Islamic studies in the West in the academy, PhDs and stuff like that. And there's a lot of openness. And they can do the research they want to do and they can actually have some sort of dignity as Muslims in the field. And they know because they're historians and they're researchers, but like, that's not what Islamic studies was 100 years ago. Like, who were the pioneers in Islamic studies? They were the colonizers. Why were they the pioneers? Because they wanted to control the Muslims. So, like, and even some of the modern Muslim movements and stuff, some of the ideas they adopted were from those people, those academics in the European lands and stuff. It's very interesting. But, like, the point is, people also rejected these things because they knew it didn't work. You know? Like, if I'm going to go to someone to try to help my soul to be better, and they don't believe in my religion, it might or might not work, depending. I'm not talking about really extreme cases, okay? Like, there's really extreme cases, you just need to go to somebody. But sometimes, like, maybe they'll respect your religion, they'll be okay. But if there's, like, any sort of anti-religious thing, they don't care for your religion, they don't, they don't think anything of you, they think that your religion is what... Deep down inside, they think that your religion is the problem anyways. That's what they think. So what kind of guidance are they going to give you when it comes to fixing your, your, your issues? It's going to be very... Uh, Problematic, you know. So this is why, alhamdulillah, the, the, this effort that we have in our community for people to go into mental health and therapy and things is really good and really important. It's a step in the right direction. The more people that we can have from amongst ourselves who can take this knowledge and figure out what to do with it and to help our community, then that's a good thing, right? Which we'll come to a little bit later. Forgive me, my, my legs started to cramp up, so. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Uh, in the meantime, in the modern period, you have kind of like a, a change in that regard that I mentioned earlier, shifting. The field is shifting a little bit, but there's more emphasis on cultural sensitivity, there's more emphasis on religion and spirituality and stuff like that. Uh, which then leads us to the, modern sta uh, the current state of Islam and psychotherapy research. Uh, there was a research that was conducted, it was a 10-year review from 2006 to 2015 of the state of Islam and psychology publications and identified five major themes, okay? Five major themes for publications in the field. Number one is unification of Western theories and Islamic practices. Number two is historical accounts of early Muslim scholarly writings on psychology. Number three, development of Islamic theoretical models. Number four, development of practical interventions and techniques. 
and five psychological scales and instruments normed on Muslim populations. Which now brings us to this issue of why did we say an Islamic worldview rather than a Muslim worldview? The simple answer to that is that a Muslim can have a worldview that's not Islamic. Correct? A Muslim can have a worldview that's not Islamic. They're a Muslim and, and they have a perspective but it's not necessarily true that their perspective is grounded in Islam. Right? So, and, and this is a challenge that we have to face, right? In all of these fields. You know, it, and it's a natural progression. Alhamdulillah, these things are natural progressions. When you don't have someone in the field, you just want Muslims in the field. Okay, now you have Muslims in the field. You have to ask the question of, just because they're a Muslim, is that affecting their practice in any sort of way? Like, do they, do they actually have any sort of grounding in the religion that allows that to come to bear on their professional practice, which is extremely important. Because, you know, the reality is on the ground for all intents and purposes. Uh, therapists are like almost new, sh they're like the new shakes, you know? And, and I understand that because, you know, a lot of shakes don't always give the best guidance. So I get it, like you go to someone who has some sort of practice and they have a, they have a field and they have guidelines and, and, and protocols and you know there's some something around it so you go to them I, I understand it but if we, uh, we should also want people to develop their professional skills right and in and, and, and Islam not just in, in therapy right because if you're going to counsel me on again in the end of the day person's counseling you on your behavior on your heart on your overall well-being I want them to be able to bring Islam into that Otherwise, I could ask them, like, I have this addiction problem with a particular tool or whatever, but it's not going to be a holistic kind of uh, intervention. Largely, most of the publications were in number one and number two. Uh, and number, number one was like the unification of the theories and historical accounts. These are good, but they don't actually take us to the meat of the matter. And less publications happen on development of Islamic theoretical models and development of practical interventions and techniques. So if we think about things like there's layers to things, right? If we're, if we're looking at, okay, here's some Islamic practices and here's some Western practices and where do they match or not? Okay, that's, you're dealing like very high. But we actually want to get lower. So what is the actual philosophy and theory behind the model that I'm using? And you know, what does that mean for my treatment of people? Is this, are you guys following what I'm saying so far? Or is it like in left field? It's okay? Alright, and then that leads them in the introduction to uh, the model that they're going to present in the book. Okay, which we're not going to do right now. Alright, next slide. These are really sophisticated slides. I told you I prepared slides so much on that. <laughs> Very complex. Actually, I, I did it for what comes later, so we can look at them. This part is just intro, which I probably need to move faster on. Second intro, recent past in our context. So we kind of talked about that a little bit. And um, so now, also, like I said, if you're in this field, if you care about this stuff, you need to at least read the first chapter in this book and the first two chapters in the other book. At least. At least read that. First chapter in this book, first two in the other book. Yeah. 
so the first chapter in this book is written by Dr. Abdullah Rahman. It's a pretty cool name, actually. <laughs> Abdullah Rahman. That's pretty cool. Dr. Abdullah Rahman. He's, he's produced quite a bit now in this field. And he's kind of well known in the field um, of Islamic psychology. Um, so his, his first chapter here is interesting. He worked with them also on this book, but it's, it's not quite the same. So there's some things that I want to mention from, from this chapter that will kind of give us a little bit of background to. So I'll read some passages and then uh, we'll move on. He says, for example, this, the, the title of the chapter is An Islamic Theoretical Orientation to Psychotherapy. An Islamic Theoretical Orientation to Psychotherapy. He says, I'd like to make a distinction between Muslim psychology and Islamic psychology. Muslim psychology focuses on how Muslims think and behave. It is primarily a culturally adapted approach to Western therapy that incorporates language, customs, and culturally relevant sentiments into the therapeutic process. Okay? Then he goes and says, In my understanding, Islamic psychology is an indigenous approach to the study and understanding of human psychology that is informed by the teaching and knowledge from the Qur'an and the prophetic tradition. Right, so this is different. So now what is Islamic psychology actually? It's an approach to the study and understanding of human psychology based on the Qur'an and the guidance of the Prophet uh, He continues after this, this is a good paragraph. It's quite long, so I'm trying to focus. As practitioners, when we are trained in theoretical orientations that are based in secular conceptualizations of the human condition, that do not necessarily include a recognition of the existence of a higher power, much less any specific understanding of the person in relation to God, we are left to our own devices to incorporate these conceptions into our work with clients. They're saying our training doesn't include God. But we believe in God. And because our training doesn't include God, when it comes to our own practice, we're left to figure out how, we want, how we're going to do that. But we're left to our own devices. While this may seem straightforward, it can wind up being a patched-together, integrative approach to therapy, and not an overt theoretical orientation. What often happens as a result is that clinicians rely on the theoretical orientations in which they have been trained, and that operate under a Western secular paradigm as the base of their therapeutic modalities. While many of the techniques, methods, and approaches have merit, and offer useful tools for working with clients effectively, the theoretical underpinnings of such orientations are not necessarily aligned with the Islamic paradigm. This can be problematic in working with Muslim clients, and the therapist may be inadvertently guiding them in a direction other than the one defined in the Islamic tradition. What perhaps gets even less attention is the awareness of the possibility that conventional secular conceptualizations of the self may in fact be guiding people in general, not just Muslims, away from the most holistic and optimal way for personal transformation and healing. It's a powerful paragraph. Yeah. What is he basically getting at? He's getting at and he'll say this later, is that, who's the healer? A shafi. The healer is a shafi. And who gives us guidance as to how we can heal ourselves and how we can be whole and how we can live the best life that we can possibly live? It's Allah and the Prophet So if we're adopting a, a theoretical orientation that takes those things out, not only for Muslims, but for everyone, we're actually not taking them to the path that's best for them. You know? Uh, it's, it's heavy, you know, these are heavy ideas. And, you know, just to be clear, these are people who are trained in the field. They're not like sheikhs or 
writing books on it or something, right? And these are people they spend their life in this field. And even he talks, he tells his own story that his grandfather was actually a colleague of Skinner behavior <laughs> psychology and like his grandfather when he died on his on the, at his death he told him I wish I had paid more attention to religion and spirituality and how it affects human psychology and like how he kind of like picked up the mantle of his grandfather and it led him eventually to Islam like it's a, it's, it's a cool little uh, we, we can't go over all of it but it's a, it's a very interesting chapter uh, he says that much of what conventional psychology has become is strictly about studying the brain, behavior, and, attrib and attributes of the human being that are tangible and measurable, a realm of study that leaves very little room for something like the soul. But the soul is part of it. Uh, he says, my training in Western psychotherapy gave me access to a wonderful toolkit of approaches to counseling clients. For example, techniques of engaging clients in self-reflection, skills of active listening, and therapeutic techniques that elicit clients to open up in order to gain access to their inner process and thus be better positioned to help guide them toward treatment goals. The treatment goals, however, and my approach to psychotherapy from an Islamic paradigm are different from the Western conceptualization of therapy and therefore need to be reoriented in order to use those techniques and skills in Islamic psychotherapy. So he, he tells, tells you more about what that means now. Unlike some Western approaches, to therapy, my goal is not necessarily to get the client to where they want to be, as that is not as important as them wanting what is best for them. So again, like now, it, it, we have like to really think about these things. You know, we can't just. Uh, so it's really deep. It says in the Quran, "You may hate the thing, and it is good for you, and you may love the thing, and it is bad for you." And Allah knows why you know not. From an Islamic perspective, Allah is the best of planners, and He is the one who knows what is best for us. So from this approach, it is fundamentally a very different paradigm that determines what the goal of therapy is. To be clear, physical symptoms and severe mental illness often should be treated with medicine under supervision of an appropriate medical psychiatric practitioner. Okay? We're clear on that. However, from an Islamic paradigm of psychology, most sicknesses of the heart and soul are seen as a result of the person being disconnected from God, while others are seen as challenges or tests that people need to go through in order to purify their soul and may not, in fact, actually be curable or need to be fully eradicated. Thus, an Islamic approach to psychotherapy can often help reframe client struggles in light of spiritual growth, regardless of the client's particular beliefs, and can often work well in tandem with medical interventions. That's interesting. Uh, then he on, he says, I operate under the notion that God is the true healer, and it's really only he who can guide a person and change their heart a sentiment shared by many traditional healing philosophies. Since my job is to be a conduit for that connection to God, this is an academic work, just, you know, so like, if you want references and stuff, he gives references. I'm not saying them all the time, but he's referencing like such and such in this year, and such and such in this year, and their publications and everything else. Uh, since my job is to be a conduit for that connection to God, the best thing I can do to be an effective practitioner is to get out of the way. The more I can clean my own heart, the more God can give to the client what they need. I do this by constantly keeping up with my own jihad and nefs, and thus modeling this for the client. It's an important thing you'll hear him talk about, and you'll hear them talk about. The, the practitioner of Islamic psychology, they have to take their own spiritual development, just as, and this of course exists in some Western, but specifically in the area of therapy, right? Uh, but they have to be very serious about this. I have to be doing my own jihad. I have to be purifying myself. I have to be 
and proving myself. I have to be dealing with my issues. Otherwise, I'm going to get in the way when I'm trying to deal with someone else's issues. Or trying to help them to deal with their issues. Uh, people tend to take guidance easiest from those who are living examples, as it is more relatable. Uh, then he mentions that, of course, this is the, one of the beautiful wisdoms of the Prophet that he's an example for us because he lived amongst the people and we saw him and we have all these reports about him and everything else. And he was the perfect example of unbounded love and positive regard towards others when he said, none of you are true believers until you love your fellow human beings what you love for yourself. Uh, so of course this brings up the idea of unconditional positive regard. Uh, but I'm going to read this paragraph because it shows you that it was, again, what we're trying to get at here is this idea of how do I bring an Islamic worldview to what I'm doing, right? So this idea of unconditional positive regard is a, is a uh, concept that comes up in, in therapy. But look how he's going to now talk about it, okay? One of the most well-known concepts that come out of the humanistic psychology movement is the Rogerian concept. Is the G hard or soft? Anyone feel soft? Rogerian concept of the therapist having unconditional positive regard for the client because it creates the container necessary for the client to begin to open up to the difficult process of therapy. Um, so the idea is that the therapist has this unconditional positive regard. They just, you know, they have love for the person, they have concern for the person. And that creates a relationship that allows for what's necessary in order for the therapeutic process to go forward. Then he says, just as you cannot truly be a believer without this condition of love, similarly, you cannot truly operate from within an Islamic paradigm without reflecting love for your client. The distinction between the love of God uh, and wajud that the Prophet was reflecting and that of the Rajarian concept of unconditional love or positive regard is that while this deep love is given to all generously, it may not be accurate to say that it is unconditional. The Prophet ﷺ balanced his unbounded love with firm resolve in standing in the truth, and he lovingly guided people toward what is better for them. Thus, an Islamic paradigm approach requires a compassionate, merciful stance that simultaneously stands firm in the notion that it is not potentially in the client's best interest to do something that is harmful for his or her soul. This is a very interesting thing, right? So he's saying, yeah, it's... it's Un, it's, it's, you have a deep love for them, but it's not necessarily just for, like, it relates to what's best for them, what's best for them has to do with Allah. So we have to bring all of these things together. Uh, so then he goes on, we're not going to go into it, but it's actually quite interesting. He says, he talks about the human soul and the idea of the heart and the nafs and the intellect. Um, and the soul. Okay, so I should use Arabic. He uses the qalb for the heart. He talks about the different things that he does in therapeutic practice to bring attention to the heart. And he'll, he goes through details on it and I can go through it. And then he talks about the nafs or the aql and how different methods of cognitive therapy can help to get the person uh, in, to get their mind right. Uh, and the nafs and how muhasaba is important here. They keep Keeping account of one's soul and or self, their nafs. And then the ruh, and he talks about tafakkur, you know, contemplation, talks about worship and its importance in that process. Okay? So this is that chapter. Alright? The reason why I put in the recent past in our context is like, because it kind of brings us up to, what he's doing kind of brings us up to, takes us from the history and then brings us up to where we are now. So models for integrative approaches. I forgot to put the book, but and models for integrative approaches. 
the, now we're going to here. Okay, we're going back to here in the first chapter. Uh, so some of you who have been at the Medjus for some time, see, do a quick pop quiz. What are the three sources of knowledge in Islamic thought? Huh? Anyone? We won't make fun of you if you get the wrong answer. Inshallah. Huh? Anyone? Three sources of knowledge. Three sources of knowledge. Experience. Okay, experience is one. Anyone else? Aqil is, is two. Mm-hmm. And Wahi is three. So in the books of, of theology, oftentimes they'll start with this idea. This idea is very important. So what is your epistemological framework? How do you get to knowledge? To put it simply, where do you get knowledge from? And essentially the Muslim worldview is you get knowledge from three sources. One source is pure intellect, aql. Pure intellect allows us to come to certain understandings around, about the world and about existence purely out of the mind. Okay? Uh, it doesn't require anything else. So the common examples that are given in this regard are that like, you know, you can, no one has to tell you that someone's son or someone's father is older, that the father is older than the son. Um, it's very interesting. I've, I've been doing this for a while now, and I noticed something really interesting when it comes to the aql. Because for the most part, Western civilization has now settled only on experience slash observation. We only do observation experience. And we resist, of course, revelation is out. And we resist the aql too. So, because uh, I've been teaching this in, in the school, and every single time, someone in the class will say the same thing. So I'll tell them, the mind will, it will give you certain things. You can't argue with them. They're absolutely true. And then I'll say, for example, the son is younger than the father. And they'll be like, no, what if they're like adopted or they're a stepson? Like, it's, look at how you're trying to escape. Because you don't want to recognize that there are things that are absolutely true. They're non-negotiable. The son is younger than the father. It's non-negotiable. They'll come up with like some play on words. And then I'll tell them, the square cannot be a circle. They're like, no, you can make a square. If you do this to it, you can make this square. I'm like, no, you can't. You can, you can sit here and argue with me as long as you want. You cannot make a square a circle, and you cannot make a circle a square. And this is an absolute fact. And uh, this is Aqdam. the mind tells us certain things. Okay? This is one area of knowledge. Second area of knowledge we get from Revelation, from the Quran, from the Sunnah. Sometimes I'll say it's Khabar Sadiq, that it's a truthful report. And of course, the Quran is a truthful report, and Sunnah has truthful reports in it. Sallallahu alayhi wa And then the third one is observation, which is basically like we look at the world and we observe things. Whenever we drop something, it falls, and it falls at a particular speed. And when things are exposed to fire, they burn. And if you get wet, it makes your clothes a little bit heavier. And like, you know, you, you, there's things that we observe, and we know that they're true, and this is a source of knowledge as well. Um, so this is, we've talked about this, uh, there's a reason why I'm bringing this up now, you'll see, subhanAllah. And hopefully you'll understand like why we do the things that we're doing in some of these classes. So that's number one. Number two, question is, uh, what are the core components of deen? What are the core components of deen? i give you a hint. They're taught to the Prophet and the Muslims in a particular hadith that involves the angel Jibreel So what are the core components of deen? Islam, Iman, and Ihsan Islam, Iman, and Ihsan 
in Islam refers to the outward actions, and uh, Iman refers to our beliefs, and Ihsan refers to spiritual spirituality. And that becomes in Islamic studies, uh, Islam becomes fiqh and usul fiqh, science of the law, and uh, Iman becomes aqidah and ilm and kalam, philosophy and thought and belief and what do we believe and why, how do we respond to others and everything else. And then Ihsan becomes basically tasawwuf and tazkiyah and matters of the heart. How does one uh, purify their heart and improve their heart? Okay? So, all of that being said, I don't know why this keeps disconnecting and connecting. Recording in progress. Thank you, Hajj. Can we go back to this thing? Okay. Um, so, uh, now we get to this chapter. This chapter is called Foundations of Traditional Islamically Integrated Psychotherapy. Now, I want to be clear. My point in going over this chapter is not that like you need to be convinced by it and adopt it as a methodology, methodology for dealing with mental health. That's not the point. The point is to understand how people who are very serious Muslims are trying to ask the bigger questions around how do we deal with the human being and how do we improve the human being and how do we integrate our religious teachings and our religious guidance into our process of doing that. Right? It's an example. You don't have to follow this model necessarily, but it's an example of a model. Okay. Um, can I skip that part? Yeah, I think we're just going to skip that part. So, a classical Islamic epistemological framework for integrating secular and sacred sciences. Big words. Alright, so the main point here of this section very detailed actually, and I'm impressed with their research, mashallah. Um, actually, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's Mulan Abidan. So he wrote the chapter with, yeah, with the Sheikh, Sheikh Abidan, yeah. So, um, <coughs> anyways, the, the first point is this issue of what are our sources of knowledge? So what he's trying to get at is, our sources of knowledge are three that we mentioned, right? So. Uh, this issue, first of all, we have the mind, and we have, we have the aql, we have the revelation, we have observation. And he says, the utilization of this source of knowledge, revelation, represents perhaps the greatest divergence between the two epistemic frames of modern psychology and cognitive neuroscience on the one hand, and Islamic theology on the other, whereby the former dismisses the admissibility of such information in both the building of models and in models of practice, methods of practice. So we have two issues here. One of them is, what is the model? Second one is, what is the method of practice? So, obviously, if you're taking a secular approach, revelation is not part of how you're going to develop your approach. Right? But for us, in anything that we do, these are the three sources of how we develop our framework. We develop our framework through sound intellectual thinking. We develop our framework through revelation. You know, the Prophet will give us, he gives us that. I mean, how many times in the Qur'an is the Prophet referred to as? We use a qiyam, that the Prophet will come and the Prophet will purify them. Part of this, the Prophet is the person who helps the people to become better. So clearly there's going to be things in the Revelation that help in this process as well. And then there's going to be observation, which we don't have any issue with. Right? If, if there's, and that's a, part, a lot of what modern mental health is built upon, is that there's things that have been observed to be effective as practices and interventions for different illnesses and pathologies, and we can use them, alhamdulillah, we're okay with that, right? But as a baseline, these are our three sources. Okay. Um, thus, in an Islamic epistemology, epistemology, objective facts do not have a particular cultural origin, 
scientific founding, findings that can be safely regarded as objective fact, regardless of their Eastern or Western origin, are not to be disputed or hastily assumed to be at odds with divine revelation. So Muslims don't have an issue with this, you know. Like for example, you see it very early. Allah created the created the everything in creation in six days, right? All basically all of the commentators will tell you that six days is not days like twenty-four hours. Because they know this. They know from the observed even then, they know from the observed reality that the universe wasn't made in six periods of twenty-four hours. And they know that the Arabic language Ayam allows for multiple interpretations. That yom can be less than 24 hours, yom can be more than 24 hours, yom can be very long. So they, they leave this open for interpretation. Because now, why? Because we have multiple things that are working together. The revelation is giving us information, observation is giving us information, the aql is giving us information. We balance all of them together to come to conclusions on things. Um, another thing that he mentions here in the beginning is very important is that the revelation in our approach to knowledge will also give us things that are, we call them qati'i and dhanni. Qati'i and dhanni. Qati'i means it's categorical. It cannot be understood in any other way, and it's exactly what it is. And dhanni means that you think that it's right, but it could actually not be right. Okay? This is extremely important because a lot of the arguments that we have as a people are because we make things that are dhanni, qati'i. So now if you think about politics, you think about even a lot of the discourses around mental health and stuff, right? Like there's certain speaking points. If you question them, you're in trouble. But honestly, if we were to honestly look at it, it's not cutting. Like the, the position that's being taken is not categorical. It could be likely, it could be one theory, it could be one approach, it could be one idea, it could be one explanation. But it's not, we can't say necessarily 100% that that's the only possible explanation. Right? And if we can't say that, then we can't, we can't interact with it in this way, as if it's uh, this undeniable fact. Right? So we have to, in our minds, understand these things. In the community, we talk about this also in like matters of fiqh. Matters, and, so, and when you pass something off as qat'i, when it's dhanni, you create problems. This happens a lot in the community around matters of fiqh. You know? So you ask someone a question, say, can we do this or not do this? So, Absolutely, you can't do that. And then you go and you look it up and you're like, wait, there were three opinions. Like, why, did, why are we absolutely not doing that? You could say, this one, I don't, I don't think we should do this. I think we should do this. Alhamdulillah, fine. But you can't pass it off as being categorical when it's not categorical. So this is an intellectual framework that's important as we approach any discipline. And we approach any discipline and ask ourselves, this conclusion that I'm coming to, this idea that I'm dealing with, is it absolute or is it not absolute? Could, are there other possibilities? And if they are, we have to acknowledge that and deal with them like that. The other thing that comes up here is this idea of subjective versus objective. So he says, for example, like, we believe that you can get true knowledge in dreams, right? You can get true knowledge even in inspiration. Like, you feel inclined to doing a particular thing, and that could be a true inclination, it could be true. But it's completely subjective. And so, we can understand it to be of possible benefit to a particular person, but we can't make a method out of it. So we need things that are objective in order to make a method. Okay? So this is just, these are like, uh, uh, and this is all from Islamic studies. Like these are principles in, in Islamic law, largely, that are being pulled upon here. Uh, and then he says that, you know, these three sources, in some, 
Through an acknowledgement of all three valid knowledge sources as acceptable avenues for the acquisition of knowledge and through a thorough consideration of all rational, sacred, and empirical evidence as being congruous, an assignment of epistemology makes it possible for scholars to produce a reliable framework of psychological treatment that is both holistic and Islamically integrated. Okay? Since compelling empirical evidence is not at odds with sacred knowledge and Islamic epistemology, and rather is an important aid in understanding sacred texts in the education, adjudication of Islamic ethics and law in the context of the behavioral sciences, empirically evidenced modalities of treatment, understandings of the human psyche, and biological basis of psychology are critical contributors to the integration of the sacred sciences with psychotherapeutic models and methods. Very nice paragraph. Okay, then they go on. Uh, that the three things that these, so this is why I brought this, okay? Here's the first image, is the one that I sent. See how they put that? You have empirical knowledge, that's aql. And you have the revelational knowledge, which is the revelation, obviously. And you have the rational knowledge. And there's a meeting point of all of these places, which is what, was in, what is going to be useful in the realm of mental health. But it comes from all of the sources, okay? The next one also, they do the same thing. They talk about, these are different words for it. So fiqh al-batin would be ihsan, and the fiqh al-akbar would be uh, iman, and fiqh al-zahir would be islam. So basically what it's saying is, you have these three sources also, all of these are going to come together and be uh, a means by which we come to conclusions on uh, how to deal with issues of mental health. Then they give this thing, I don't know if you can see it, but I'll read it to you, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's the range, uh, and I'm going to just probably summarize a little bit now because you guys' eyes are um, glassing over. Um, there's so many good sections here. Get the book and read it. <laughs> there's an important point here, and it might offend some people, but I'm going to say it anyways because it's true. Uh, a general treatment methodology articulated in the Islamic spiritual tradition is the development of resilience by means of psycho-spiritual training, tarbiyah. Tarbiyah was traditionally conducted by spiritual mentors, sheikhs or murabbis, individuals who themselves would have undergone a lengthy and rigorous course of psycho-spiritual training under the spiritual mentorship of their own sheikhs. This lengthy but often informal mentorship process resulted in their acquisition of spiritual coping mechanisms that allowed them to effectively manage the various stressors of daily life. The only reason I'm saying this is because uh, the word tarbiyah, it needs to be understood in the context of the last 1,000 years, or 1,200, 1,400 years, not just the last 100 years. And, uh, you know, if you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. If you want to talk about it, you can talk about it. But there's some, some uh, ideas in our community that have very much reduction, been very reductionist in their understanding of tarbiyah. Um, so, uh, we'll just leave that at that. So they put a thing here. One of the things that they're mentioning is that if we were to take an Islamic approach to psychotherapy, there are things that would fall under psychotherapy that don't fall under it clinically, but they would fall under it Islamically. Um, so it wouldn't be considered, uh, I, think, I don't know if I, did I? Uh, let me just read this part. In Islam, a person's ability to achieve true psycho-spiritual health rests on their actualization of their primordial purpose. Constructs of psycho-spiritual health in Islam assume that all human beings are created for an otherworldly purpose, to tread a path that will ultimately ensure salvation in the afterlife and the acquisition of God's pleasure. As salvation and divine pleasure are attainable only through the worship of God, health from an Islamic theological perspective is maintained by a firm adherence to a life worshiping God and any obstacle that obstructs one's ability to tread this path 
is detrimental to human functioning and warrants removal. So essentially what he's getting at here is that there are matters, if you look at this uh, image, that there are things that are in the clinical range. Then there are things that are in, they're spiritually not good for us. They wouldn't normally fall under, like in a purely secular approach, they wouldn't fall under what would get treated. But spiritually they're not good for us. Um, so for example, there's a, um, here it is, this section. So thus, while a practitioner of Islamic integrated therapy is aware that certain levels of self-admiration are not socially debilitating or clinical in severity, they are also aware that spiritual masters warn that self-admiration leads one down the path of arrogance, and that arrogance is the root of a multitude of spiritual diseases. So now this is a spiritual pathology. It would fall under the care plan, so to speak, even if in a normal clinical setting it wouldn't fall under it, right? Because this person, maybe they have like a little bit of self-admiration, but that doesn't, that's not a clinical issue in, in like a purely secular sense. But from an Islamic perspective, it actually would be. You know, we recognize that that can lead to other things that would be very problematic down the road. Um, they also make this image, this image is kind of interesting. I don't know if it's legible for you. Yeah. Um, but it kind of like shows this progression of the human being, that the human being has the heart, and the heart, if it's pulled towards animal instincts, then it goes towards a side that is more body-based, like it's more animalistic, and it's more follows the desires. And if it's purified and it's worked upon, and the intellect is used, then the soul, the spirit, can become dominant, and the human being can be what they actually are meant to be, and they will, in doing so, attain a certain level of equilibrium in that process. Uh, they also have this chart, which I think is really interesting. So this is kind of like part of their model. Um, let me just see if there's anything else. I can put this down. Okay, I'm going to put this down. So here you have, for example, the heart. So the heart has a number of different faculties in it, say, right? So it has the aql, which deals with cognition. It has the ruh, which is the spirit. It has the ihsas, which is emotion. And it has the nefs uh, also. It says nefs, right? Yeah. So, and then each of those will have ways. When you have illnesses that are affecting those different areas, then there's different ways that you can treat those illnesses. So, for example, if you have a cognitive issue, it can be dealt with through some level of education and some level of reflection and contemplation that allows the person to shift maybe a pattern that they had in their mind. They can shift it to something that would be more sound or more correct, and that can unlock certain things for them. And uh, then in doing that, then they can get to a point where their mind is able to really reflect properly. If they have an issue in the soul, then one of the ways to treat it would be to make certain types of dhikr. That this dhikr will treat the soul and it will lead the person to a level of elevation in the soul. If they're emotional, he spends a lot, they have a whole chapter on that, um, on the emotional side, and it's a lot more complicated actually. Um, and then the nefs side, there's mukhalifa, that the nefs uh, cause us to certain things, and the way that we overcome that is we do opposite, and we work to overcome that in, uh, with different methods. You know, obviously they're not going to flesh out the whole process here, but this is just a framework. I just remembered that, uh, this your, your brother's in this book, right? He's Sayyid S. Jafri, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Zohar's brother's in this book. Framing the mind-body problem in contemporary neuroscientific and Sunni Islamic theological discourse. He's a contributor on that chapter. Uh, mashallah. 
So it's pretty cool. I, I, was, really, I was like, wait a second, I don't know this person. Um, so all of these then, they're treated in order to reach a level of equilibrium. This is kind of like their process for the, what happens in the process of, of change and what happens from the patient side and the practitioner side. So the first issue is that there has to be a murabata. There has to be murabata. Murabata means there's an alliance, therapeutic alliance between the two people involved. That you engage with them in a way that there's a level of trust, there's a level of openness, and now the process of, of healing can begin. And the second level is in mutashata, or in kishaf, that there's a level of understanding of the self that comes through this process that a person begins to understand, okay, I have this thing I need to work on, I have this thing I need to work on, and so on. And then they do mu'alaja, you know, they treat these different things that are in the person to the point that they can reach some level of um, ittihad. Ittihad they mean here like uh, stability, equilibrium, and mu'asala that they are able to continue. Uh, one of the things that was interesting I found in, um, in the text is that they say that in the, in the relationship between the, the practitioner and the patient, part of the idea is that the patient will develop a capacity for themselves that they can overcome whatever it is they're dealing with them. And then they know, they know how to, in the future when things come up, they know how to deal with them. Because they've, they've gone through this process and now they have the tools, like, okay, I can recognize that and I know how to treat this and now I can deal with it and I know how to move forward. Um, and so they, they position the therapist here actually between the tabib, the clinician, and the sheikh, who's the murabi, right? And, and between is the rafiq. And it's interesting how they did this because they bring this passage from Imam Ghazali. Imam Ghazali basically says, Rahimahullah, that if the person wants to know the diseases of themselves and to fix them, then they should either have a sheikh murabi or they should have a rafiq. So they should have a sheikh or they should have someone who uh, is like their partner, their companion on the journey. So they position then the idea of the therapist or the counselor as the companion on the journey. That they're with the person and they go with them and they experience these things together. Um, and they go through this, um, you know, clinical pathology, spiritual pathology, normal rage. Anyways, either, this is it. You know, uh, again, why, what is the whole overarching point? Not to get into... Uh, the point is that we have an intellectual tradition. And we believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we believe in the Prophet And we believe at the foundational level that they have given us everything that we need directly or indirectly. Part of what they've given us is that we should rely on our intellect. Part of what they've given us is that we should observe things and we should come to conclusions from them. And that's a framework then that allows us to interact with various disciplines and various ideas. And through those interactions, we can then produce and contribute things that are useful for the world. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting in, in Dr. Rothman's chapter is that he says that he's, he considers himself an Islamic psychologist and he's clearly a Muslim. And yet, uh, he, he obviously also treats non-Muslims. Right? Someone keeps cutting in and out. Uh, he obviously, maybe it's uh, He obviously treats non-Muslims. He says, obviously, he's not going to talk to them about Islam, but he doesn't change it, actually. He might use words a little bit differently. He might use concepts a little bit differently. But the general framework and, and approach to how to attain this healing as a person, he's taking the same approach. Right? And so, you know, this is how, when, when the Muslims are grounded in these things, then we're able to actually bring our contribution to the world. 
But as long as, you know, we can't just like, oh, that looks really good, let's take it, without really, we have to, uh, they always say, um, means stop where they stopped, or stand where they stood, and then go. So we have to understand, like, okay, this is what the Prophet gave us. This is, and there's a rich, there's a lot here, you know, it's not, it's not empty. There is, uh, and Khalil Sam has been doing some really interesting things. Like just yesterday they had a, a session on how Mulana Rumi talks about and treats grief in the Muslim. It's very interesting. And they were like, they sat and they're reading all the passages from the Muslim and Farsi and translating it and stuff. And there's some really beautiful things. I mean, uh, I only caught a little bit of it, but I'll, I'll tell you like one piece that I caught that really um, was so powerful. It said when Mulana was saying that when, when Ram, when Ram, like this, uh, like sadness and just upsetness comes to the person, then know that it's a gift, uh, it's a guest, the, 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 it's coming as a guest. And when someone comes as a guest, they take their right as a guest. And they'll stay for a couple days. And if it comes as a guest, and you treat it with adab, and you treat it the way that it's supposed to be treated, then eventually it'll go back to Sultan Din. This is such a beautiful, like, Sultan Din is like the Sultan of the heart, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're saying that the grief will come, the grief will come and visit you, and you give it, you treat it properly, and you deal with it with adab, and so on and so forth. And then it will go back to Allah. And when it, and when it goes back to Allah, Make sure that it goes back to Allah and it, and it mentions to Allah how well its stay was, how good its stay was, right? He's talking about this idea that when someone visits, you, you honor them, and then after they leave, they talk about how they were treated and so on and so forth. So he says, when the grief comes to you, treat it with adab and treat it properly and so on and so forth, and then it will leave. And when it leaves, it will remember you that this person treated me well and so on and so forth. He's like, you know, talking about a lot of these things. And, uh, there's, there's, Stores and stores and stores for us to mine from from our tradition how to deal with these things and how to help these things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was talking allow us to develop kind of like a sound worldview and how we deal with things. This of course mental health is again the title it's a case study. But the same thing applies. Medicine it applies to, right? How do we understand medicine? How do we understand the treating of the human body? How do we think about the body? How do we you know there's a lot of questions here. Uh, how do we think about history? How do we talk about history? How do we talk about politics? How do we think about even biology? How do we think about physics? How do we think about the, dis the discoveries that we make or that we don't make? The places that we go or we don't go? You know, and why do we do that? All of these things will be part of how we develop our world. If anyone has any comments or, or anything, please uh, feel free, inshallah. What's the name of that organization about that was talking about women? Khalil Center. Khalil Center. Yeah. They have some sessions. Lately they've been doing different topics. You know, how do you deal with grief? How do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? So, and they're the ones who are behind these, you know, at least this book. So, yes. I have a brief question. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> So you touched on two points. One was the how Muslims today treat therapists as more pro professional than true, and more as a thought leader. And then you touched on towards the end the reductions in the Tajia and Khatan I find in 
my experience, I've found that there is a general systemic lack of professionalism in this community. And I find that that may be tied to that reductionist attitude towards Serbia. So I was wondering what your thoughts are, if you can elaborate a little bit more. When you say Muslim community, do you mean a particular element of it, or like, you say a lack of professionalism in the Muslim community, so you're saying, how are you defining community here? In the immediate way is like, how uh, events will start on uh, of time versus like on the actual appointed mm -hmm. time. So if it's at seven, it becomes eight. And, mm -hmm. and so much so that many nonprofits will work that into their schedule. So they'll announce it at six, and they'll actually start the program at 6.30 or seven to accommodate for that lack. So I think more explicitly, maybe in the hierarchies of management, how Muslims treat management rather with more, like they kind of blend religion where it becomes a specific example is like they won't fire someone because they want them, they want them to provide for their families, they're thinking about them in the context of their families. Mm. But they're actually hurting the business, they're hurting the nonprofit mm. in such a way that it would be better fit-wise to fire them. It's mm. really company, mm. right? But it's difficult to do that because of politeness and kindness and the religion. Not necessarily gets in the way, but in his experience. Informs. Informs. So what's your, what are you wondering? So I was wondering if you could elaborate on the reductionist attitude towards Serbia in the past few years, and then also how that ties to professionals in the community.
and this is it's more a matter of spirituality than it is a matter of like behavior. Okay, so the idea is that a person has been trained in their spirituality under someone else uh, who was authorized to do that through a process that goes back to the Prophet and not just like, you know, uh, this person's your Murabi because like someone decided that. It's not, it, it, that's not how the word was understood. Um, so, but that's, it's a big topic. I'm sorry, you asked a big question, I gave you nothing. But The question was regarding um, uh, like lack of profession, the, the idea that the word tarbiyah has not newly originated and what does tarbiyah actually mean and is that connected to lack of professionalism in the community uh, in general? In the workplace environment. Workplace environment, community settings, nonprofits, stuff like that. How we interact with these things. I think a lot of that actually is more culture than Tanbiya. And of course they're, inter they're interrelated, but... Anyways, I don't know if I have anything useful to say. Yes. some explanation that's very mild and forgettable. <laughs> that, would, that would be my approach. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, that's the 